welcome to the weekly sermon podcast at the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. We're going to talk a little bit about God and His Word. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but I'm going to share with you a couple of things that I've learned. One of the things that I've learned is that there are some things in the Bible that are so simple and straightforward that even I can understand it. Very, very simple. When the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, what does that mean? Is that hard for anybody to figure out? I mean, the thou is you. If you don't know thou, that may be a starting place if you're a King James person. But, but you shall not kill. Well, what does kill mean? It is taking of another human life. So when the Bible says thou shall not kill, that means you or me, we must not take another person's life. Easy peasy, right? When the Bible says you shall not steal, is there anything hard about that that you can't grasp? What does it mean to steal? Well, it means to take something from someone that doesn't belong to you. And whenever it says you shall not steal, who's it talking about? Everybody go, me, right? That's easy. There are some things in the Bible that are just amazingly straightforward and easy to lay hold of. However, there are some things in the Bible that are a whole lot tougher and a whole lot harder to understand. And I want us to look together at one of those passages this morning. It's found in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 13. That, by the way, is in the Old Testament. Don't get them confused with the Corinthians. 1 Chronicles chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. If you're finding 1st or 2nd Samuel or 1st or 2nd Kings, you're kind of in the neighborhood. First Chronicles chapter 13, beginning verse 1. We're going to read through verse 14. It said, David consulted with all of his officials, including the generals and the captains of his army. And then he addressed the entire assembly of Israel as follows. If you approve, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send messages to all the Israelites throughout the land, including the priests and Levites in their towns and pasture lands. And let us invite them to come join us. It is time to bring the ark of our God, for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to this, for the people could see it was the right thing to do. So David summoned all Israel from the Shihar Brook in Egypt in the south, all the way to the town of Lebo Hamath in the north, to join in bringing the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. Then David and all Israel went to Baalah of Judah, also called Kiriath-Jerim, to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, and they bought it from Abinadab's house. Uzzah and Ahio were, guarding, were guiding the cart, and David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and trumpets. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him dead because he had laid his hand on the ark. So Uzzah died there in the presence of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah, and he named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is called today. David was now afraid of God. 
And he asked, how can I ever hope to bring the ark of God back into my care? So David did not move the ark of God into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. And the ark of God remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything that he owned. Stop right there. Let me give you some background what's going on. Most of you have a little bit of Bible history base. Almost everyone has heard of King David. Well, before King David, there was King Saul. And, and during King Saul's reign, he and David did not always get along well. Saul was afraid of David because David was a very effective warrior. And, and in fact, during the time of King Saul, a prophet had come along and anointed David and said that David was going to be the next king of Israel. Well, a battle takes place in which King Saul and three of his sons, who would have been successors to the crown, they're killed. And so the thinking of a lot of people, including David, is, all right, it's time. Now, David was anointed king. He's the one that God has appointed. He should be made king. But guess what? There's still a lot of people that, that come from the family of Saul. And there are still a lot of people who were Saul's advisors, generals and diplomats and others. And they weren't so keen on giving up their power and handing everything over to David. And so for a period of approximately seven years, there was a civil war that took place between the house of Saul and the house of David. So when we pick up in 1 Chronicles 13, what we're reading about is David consolidating his power. What has taken place is that one by one, all of these key, key people, whether it was generals or military leaders or just the leaders of some of Israel's various tribes, one by one, they begin to come to David and say, you know what, David, we accept you as our king. And by the time we get to 1 Chronicles chapter 13, all of the key leaders of Israel have come together and they have agreed that David should be the undisputed king of Israel. And so the kingdom is united under one king as anointed by God. You got that? Everything's going pretty good. I mean, if you're David and you've been in civil war for seven years and now everything is all gathered up and, and all of the people behind you, that is what you long for in a leader. But David had one other thing that he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was this. He said, you know, God's united us as a people, and that's great. But he said, back during the reign of Saul, we neglected as a people, we neglected our worship of God. So David says, here's what I want to do. I want to bring the ark of God, which, by the way, if you don't know what that is, can you throw a picture up there, guys? That, that is what is known as the ark of God or the ark of the covenant. It was a box that contained the Ten Commandments. And it was believed that God's presence dwelt between those angels or those cherubim on top of the box. This was the item that sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. And this was the place, again, where the presence of God was to dwell. For 20 years or more, this box that supposedly carried with it the very presence of God had stayed in somebody's house. It had been stored. They weren't using it. It, it, it worship wasn't taking place. It was simply in storage at this man named Abinadab's house. And so David says, you know what? Now that we're together as a country, we know where to get the ark of God, where God's presence dwells, 
And David said, I want to bring God right back into the center of our national life again. I want us to begin to worship God as we should. That's a good thing to do. Amen? I mean, that is a good thing for a leader to do, and it's exactly what David wanted to do. Now, I want to ask you a question. If you were David, how would you have done that? If you were David, how would you have brought the ark of God from some guy's house into Jerusalem where you want to put it? Let me ask it a different way. If I knew one of you had something that the church could really use, some item that would really help us out in our ministry, and I wanted to get that from your house to here, how would I do that? You know, probably what I would do is I would pick up the phone and I would say, you know what, Brother Ray, you got something over there at your house that we as a church could really use and it would bless us, it would bless the life of the church. Can you put that thing in your pickup and bring it over here? Isn't that what you would do? I mean, if you want to move something from point A to point B, that's kind of typically how we do it. Now, they didn't have telephones back then, so we know for sure David didn't call Abinadab's house. But what he did was he sent messengers to Abinadab's house, and that's essentially what he said. He said, listen, you've got something there that will bless us as a nation. You have the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence is supposed to dwell. I want to bring that into the capital city of this unified nation. And I want us to worship God. Abinadab, can you help me out? And Abinadab said, absolutely. And so they got a new cart. This was going to be a special occasion. Wasn't any old cart going to do. They put it on a brand new cart. And, and David and all of his dignitaries showed up at Abinadab's house because they wanted to have a great procession. You can imagine this. Leading this holy relic back into the city of God to reassume the worship that they should have been having all of this time. And so that's exactly what they did. They acquired a new cart. They loaded it on there. Abinadab's family was put in charge of the cart. And everything was going great until they got through the threshing floor. And then, I don't know whether one of the oxen stepped in a hole. I don't know what happened. I don't even understand the complete concept of the threshing floor and what that might have looked like. But they got there, and the oxen stumbled. And here's this valuable thing, the most valuable religious relic in the life of Israel. It's about to fall off the cart. And one of Abinadab's sons, named Uzzah, reaches out to steady it so it won't hit the ground. And what happens to him? God strikes him dead. And, and, and the Bible says that when that happened, basically the big day was ruined. And you can imagine that that would be true. It says that David got angry at God. And whenever you look at the Hebrew, it's a very strong word. It's not just simple anger. It means to be incensed, enraged, burning with anger. David was so mad at God. Why? Because it just seemed very unfair to David that God would strike down this man who was trying to do something good and was doing what anybody else would do in the same circumstance, and that is to put out his hand and save this, this Ark of the Covenant from hitting the ground. David couldn't understand that. So he was mad, and the Bible also says that he became afraid of God that day. He said, you know, if this is the way God is then God is not just the gracious God that I've always known Him to be. You can imagine the relationship David had with God. God helped David slay Goliath. God was with David whenever he was a shepherd boy. 
God was, was with David as he was running from Saul and was protecting him. And that's how David had always known God as his protector. But now he sees God as, as someone who can also lash out. And, and he, he was very bothered by it. I want to ask you a question. What do you think about this story? Do you think that it was unfair what happened to Uzzah? Oh, come on, don't give me Sunday school answers. I mean, it, surely some of you have read this story. I'm not saying everyone has, but surely some of us have. And, and surely whenever you get to this story and, and you read about this man who was simply trying to do the right thing and he died for it, does it seem fair to you? See, I don't think it seems fair to most of us. But what if I told you that this entire scenario was 100% avoidable? What if I were to tell you that nothing that happened here had to happen the way it did? I want you to look at Numbers chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Numbers chapter, and we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning fairly quickly because I have to in the interest of time. But Numbers chapter 4, beginning verse 1. I want us to look at a passage out of the Old Testament law that specifically speaks of how things that are sacred to God are to be handled, particularly this Ark of the Covenant. How were they supposed to take care of it? Numbers chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Record the names of the members of the clans and families of the Kohathite division of the tribe of Levi. So when you see Kohathites, those are Levites. They're just a part of the Levite clan. Verse 3. He said, list all the men between the ages of 30 and 50 who are eligible to serve in the tabernacle. The duties of the Kohathites at the tabernacle will relate to the most sacred objects of which this is one. When the camp moves... Aaron and his sons must enter the tabernacle first to take down the inner curtain and cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. Now, I wish I would have put a picture up there, but I didn't. But, but whenever you would, would look into the tabernacle, this Ark of the Covenant existed behind this thick curtain so that no one could see it. And he said, when you're ready to move it, the first thing that has to happen is the priests have to go in and they take that curtain down and then they cover the Ark of the Covenant with it so that no one else except the priests who are supposed to be there will see it. All right, you still with me? So they take down the inner curtain, cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. Then verse 6, it says, Then they must cover the curtain with fine goatskin leather and spread over that a single piece of blue cloth. And finally, they must put the carrying poles of the ark in place because it was to be carried by hand. And it was be to be carried by the Kohathites and nobody else. That's how the ark of the Lord was to be moved. So they were to cover it with a curtain. Then they were to cover it with goatskins. Then they were to cover it with a blue cloth. It's pretty covered, Right? And then it was to be carried by hand by the members of the tribe of Levi, the Kohathites specifically, to the place where it was supposed to go. Now I want you to skip down with me to verse 17. How this winds up. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Do not let the Kohathite clans be destroyed from among the Levites. How could that happen? Verse 19. This is what you must do so that they will live and not die when they approach the most sacred objects. 
Aaron and his sons must always go in with them and assign a specific duty or load to each person. And the Kohathites must never enter the sanctuary to look at the sacred objects for even a moment or they will die. There was a very specific way that God had given that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be moved. And whenever you read how David did it, by the way, when we read Numbers chapter 14, there's nothing there about a cart. There's nothing there about oxen. And, and what there is there is very clear instruction about how it is to be covered, how it is to be handled, how it is to be managed, and they don't do any of it right. And, and so it's fair for us to say this morning that the reason that Uzzah died was that no one took the time to discover how God wanted it moved. No one took the time to, to figure out what God wanted whenever it came to moving the Ark of the Covenant. David himself figured this out very quickly. I want you to go back to the book of 1 Chronicles. And we're going to pick up about three months later. 1 Chronicles chapter 15. It told us in 1 Chronicles 13 that David just, he, he sent the ark to somebody else's house. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. But something happened between 1 Chronicles 13 and 1 Chronicles 15. And what happened is David figured it out. 1 Chronicles 15 verse 1. It said, Now David built several buildings in it for himself in the city of David. And he also prepared a place for the ark of God. And he set up a special tent for it. And then he commanded, No one except the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and serve him forever. I wonder how he figured that out. See, now that there's been a crisis, now that there's been a tragedy, now then David goes back and says, All right, let's figure out what we did wrong. What does God say about this? Verse 3. Then David summoned all Israel to Jerusalem to bring the ark of the Lord to the place that he had prepared for it. And this is the number of the descendants of Aaron. We're not going to read through this, who were called together. I want you to skip down to verse 11. It said, Then David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar and these Levite leaders, Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab. And he said to them, you are the leaders of the Levite families. You must purify yourselves and all your fellow Levites so that you can bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you Levites did not carry the ark of the Lord the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. Now he figures it out. But the whole reason that Uzzah died was that no one took time to, to check with God to begin with. They just did what anybody else would do. Here's an item that needs to be moved. How do we move it? We move it on a cart. Okay, let's get a really nice one. This is going to be a special day. So they get a nice cart to move it because that was the normal way of doing things. And they never even stopped to consider that it might be wrong. It never even entered their mind. They were just doing what seemed right to them at the time. But the result was that Uzzah lost his life. I wonder how often we do the same thing. 
I wonder how often that we do something that just seems perfectly normal and acceptable, the standard operating procedures, that what they say in the military, SOP, standard operating. I wonder how many things we do by standard operating procedure just because that's what we're used to and that's what everyone around us does, but we never ask God what He thinks about it. I ask that question because as a pastor... There is a question that, that comes to my mind almost every single day and certainly every single week. Every single week, I will look around and I will see something going on in someone's life, something they are doing, uh, something they are saying, just something going on in their life, and I scratch my head. And by the way, I'm not talking about everybody in general. I'm talking about my observation of Christian people. I look around at my Christian brothers and sisters and I see them doing things and I scratch my head and I'm saying, gee, I wonder if they've ever asked God about that. I wonder if they've ever stopped and thought about how God feels about it because my guess is they haven't. And I'm real tempted to give you a list of things this morning that I've seen, but I don't think that that would be fair because I haven't figured all of these things out for myself either. But let me give you some broad topics of things that I'm speaking of. Fashion, relationships, education, debt, social media. Social media. What kind of things do we post? What kind of things do we say that we do? Child rearing, guns, politics. I look at a broad range of topics and I see all of these behaviors and I scratch my head and I say, I just wonder if, if they have sought God's face about this. Because my instinct is that there are so many things that we just accept without even considering it or thinking about it that I can't help but wonder if that's not the reason that many of us are in the messes that we're in. I wonder if we're in some of the messes that we're in simply because, like David, we just don't give things any thought. We just do. And then when there's a mess, then we go to God. And guys, that is backwards of the way that we ought to do it. And if you think that, that it is not normal for us to do that, I want to challenge you with an article that I picked up on this week. It uh, definitely is clickbait. I can say this about the article. Do they have it posted up there? Yes. Men prefer debt-free virgins without tattoos. That'll get you to click. And so I thought, well, what in the world is that? And basically what she was talking about was the college experience. She was talking about college debt, college values, and college sexuality. And let me take just a little excerpt from her article. Now, you can look at her face. Y'all, you already took it down. But, but you saw her face. She's, she's a pretty young woman. Um, don't have a lot of miles on the odometer. There may be some naivety there. And I will grant all of those things. Perhaps not the greatest maturity in the world. But listen to some excerpts. She said, there are many reasons why Christian young women should carefully consider whether or not they go to college, especially if they want to be wives or mothers someday. Secular universities teach against the God of the Bible and His ways. It's far from what God calls women to be and do. It teaches them to be independent, loud, sexually available, and immodest instead of having meek and quiet spirits. 
She goes on to say, young women learn nothing about biblical womanhood or what it takes to run a home when they go to college. They don't learn to serve others. They learn the ways of the world, selfishness and feminism instead, all of which makes a good marriage unattainable. I don't know whether you agree or disagree with that. I'm not even sure how much of it I agree or disagree with. But here's what I would say to you. At least she thought about it. At least she was looking at her age, at the experience, at the options open to her as a young Christian woman. And she's asking the right questions. What would God have me do here? What what do I need to do here that would be pleasing to God? Whether you agree or not with her conclusions, again, I say to you, at least she is thinking about how to please God. And isn't it the case that that's what we're all supposed to be doing? I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And we're going to look at a passage here that that really is going to do three things for us. One, it's, it's going to, to have a lot to say about pleasing God. And that really is my topic this morning, is how do we please God? So it's going to talk about why do we please God. It's going to talk about some things we can do that do please God. And it's going to talk about some things that we can do that, that, that don't please God. And so if you're with me in Ephesians chapter 5, let's go ahead and begin reading at verse 1. It says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are His dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ, because He loved us and offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. I want to pause right there for a second. Who was this letter, the the, the book of Ephesians, who was this letter to the Ephesians written to? This is a tricky question. Who's it written to? The Ephesians. Somebody nailed that. Was it written to everyone that lived in the city of Ephesus? No. No, it wasn't. This letter is not for everybody in Ephesus. This is not a general purpose letter. This letter was written to the church at Ephesus. This letter is written to God's people at Ephesus. And in this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, he is telling everyone in that church not to be fooled by those who try to excuse such sins because the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. We're living in an age in which it is a very common ideology that once you come to Christ, you just can't do anything to perturb God at all. Everything's good past that moment. And so that you really don't need to give any way, any thought to your ways once you become a child of God. Because God's got you at that point. And clearly, I just want you to see that that's not what Paul said. Verse 7. 
He says, don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness. But now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light, uh, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. So carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It's shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly. When David chunked the cart, uh, or chunked the box, the, the Ark of the Covenant, up on the cart, how was he acting? Thoughtlessly. He hadn't considered how God wanted him to do that. He says, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, first thing he does in this little passage up in the first couple of verses is he tells us why we are to live to please God. He said, the reason we're to live to please God is because we're God's children. That means Jesus is our brother. Jesus is the firstborn, right? And we're his brothers and sisters, and therefore he is our example. And as children of God, we should try to live like our eldest brother. We should imitate him in every part of life. That's how we are to please God. And in verse 8, he, he reminds us, that while we once lived in darkness before coming to know Christ, that after we know Christ, we are to be children of light and are to live that way. We sang a song a while ago, didn't we? You remember it? I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying there should be a definite difference between the way we lived when we were children of darkness and the way that we should live as children of light. He's saying that once the Word of God and the Spirit of God come into our life, that should give us some change of perspective. And that change of perspective should affect everything about our life. Walking in the light should be an accurate description of the New Testament Christian. We once lived in darkness, but God in His mercy came and gave us light. And now, we should no longer live in darkness or far darkness, but rather we should live for God's light. Ephesians 5 is a very good picture of what the Christian life ought to look like. Ephesians 5 also gives us a couple of lists. And these lists tell us the things that please God. In other words, these are things that we would do if we were walking in the light. And it gives us a list of things that displease God. Let's look at the ones that displease Him first. Verse 3. What are some things that displease God? 
He says, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you, for such sins have no place among God's people. First thing he says is displeasing to God is sexual immorality. The word there is pornea. It's the word from which we get pornography. But actually the word doesn't refer to pornography as such. In fact, what the word refers to is a selling of ourselves sexually or the giving of ourselves away sexually. In other words, we are either selling ourselves or giving ourselves away to someone that we don't belong to. So who does our sexuality then belong to? Hold your spot right here in Ephesians 5 and travel with me, if you would, over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're not going to spend much time on this, but I just want you to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Here Paul is writing about human sexuality and marriage. And in verse 1, he says, Now regarding the questions you asked about in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. But because there is so much sexual immorality or pornea, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. And the wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. That is the picture of a sacred, holy sexuality. God has created us to live in covenant relationship as men and women. And so your sexuality doesn't belong to you alone, but to your husband. His sexuality doesn't belong to him alone, but to the wife. And this is what he's talking about over in Ephesians 5. He's saying that when we allow our sexuality to flow outside of that boundary, it is pornea and it is displeasing to God. But there are some other things that he mentioned. Back to Ephesians 5. He says, let there be no sexual immorality, verse 3, among you, nor let there be impurity or greed. What is impurity? Impurity is the mixing of something that is clean and something that is filthy. It is mixing the clean and the unclean. In other words, God doesn't want us to, to mix uh, one part of our life that we have made holy, supposedly, with a lot of things out there that are not holy. And maybe one of the best ways I can explain it is to take you, again, hold your place in Ephesians 5, but let me take you to James, towards the back of your Bible. James chapter 3. You say, Brother Gary, you're going too fast. That's what we got it online for. You can go back and... Go back and review some of these. I have to move fast to get through this this morning. But I want you to look at James chapter 3, verse 7. Good example of mixing the clean and unclean here. He says, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. 
Surely, brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. That's what it means to mix the clean and the unclean. God says, listen. It is displeasing to me when you're one kind of person, when you're gathered together in church as God's people, but you walk out that door and you become an entirely different kind of person. He said, it is displeasing to me whenever you are, uh, when you are clean here, but then you go out the door and you become unclean, whether it's in speech, conduct, or dress, or anything else. That's impurity, and it's not to be part of the Christian life. And then, of course, back in Ephesians chapter 5, he also mentions greed. Y'all know what greed is, right? Greed's the love of money. Greed is, is making money the center of your life. Money dictates what you will do. Money dictates where you will live. Money dictates how much time you will have with your family. Money dictates whether or not you will come to church and where you'll go to church. It, it, it just becomes the center of your life. And Paul says whenever you allow that to, to be true, it becomes a form of idolatry and it's displeasing to God. Now I want you to look at what he says in verses 5 through 10. I'm in Ephesians chapter 5 again. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning at verse 5. Let's pick up the end of this. He said, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Guys, that's really strong. And again, I remind you, this was written to the church, not to the general population. And so he's writing to God's people, and he said, You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey Him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of light. What pleases God? It pleases God when we live as people of light. He gives us a list of things at the bottom of this passage that should mark people who are living lives uh, as, as people of light. Let's look at them quickly. Verse 15. I'm not going to go over this word by word like I did before. Most of these are easy to understand. He says, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly don't that's what David did right with the cart don't act thoughtlessly but understand what the Lord wants you to do don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life that's true be filled with the Holy Spirit that pleases God singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs Songs among yourselves pleases God. Making music to the Lord in your hearts pleases Him. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Again, let me get to what I think is the central part of this passage. It pleases God, brothers and sisters, when we don't act thoughtlessly. When we don't just go along with the flow. When we're not carried along with the current of our culture and our society and what everybody on our left and our right is doing, God says to do that is to behave 
thoughtlessly like David did with the cart. And then he tells us some things that we can do that would please God. And I point Ephesians 5 out to you this morning simply to say this, guys. The Bible is full of passages just like it. It really is, particularly in the New Testament, but in the Old as well. The Bible is full of passages that literally lay out in a list things that please God and make Him happy and literally lay out in a list things that God doesn't like. And so it's really not hard to figure out what God likes and what He dislikes and it's really not that hard to figure out what God's will is. Pleasing God is not that hard. And what that means is that if we don't know what pleases God... Right now, if you don't know what pleases God right now, it can only be because you have not cared enough to try. Everything that God wants us to know is found right here in this Word. This Word reveals God's character. It reveals God's nature. And it reveals those things that we can do to please or displease God. Now, the Holy Spirit plays a role in it, absolutely. But you show me who's someone, someone whose life is being led by the Holy Spirit who, who doesn't also spend time in this Word, and I will show you someone who is in the ditch. Because the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to take what is in this Word and make it alive to us. So that it speaks to our hearts, so that we experience conviction, so that we experience the presence of God, so that we feel pressured into making those changes in our life that cause us to be more like Christ and more pleasing to Him. And so since God has given us this word revealing Himself, there is no real reason for us not to know God. Right? There really isn't. So let me ask you a question. Do you know God? Do you know His will? Do you know the things that please Him and the things that don't please Him? Because, brothers and sisters, it is very important that you do. I want you to look one more passage, and we'll close with this one. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is a passage that we look at quite a bit. It's really one of the central passages in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. In some Bibles it will be in red because it's the words of Jesus. He says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let that soak in. Just because you say Jesus is Lord, just because you say you're a Christian, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will? Only those who actually do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. Clearly, he's talking to religious people. And so this is a picture of the judgment. And there are a lot of religious people before God. And and they're fully expecting to get into heaven. Why? Because they have done things that are good. They have done miracles. They have cast out demons. 
These are, these are people who have done things that we might think in our mind would be right at the center of what God wants. And yet God, Jesus here, sends them away. Why? Look at verse 23. He says, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. That's the crux of the matter. He said, the only people in in are the people who know and do the will of God. But he said, there are those who just break God's laws and, and they're not going to enter in. And, and when he talks about breaking God's laws, there's really only two causes for that. One is, they have never taken the time to get to understand what the Word of God says to begin with. Therefore, they cannot do it. That covers some. Or, else they have been exposed to the Word of God, and they do know the things that are pleasing to God and the things that are displeasing to God, but they simply disregard those things. And guys, the passage is telling us that neither one of those things is going to have a positive outcome. Neither one. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on the sand. When the rain and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. The only people that are ultimately going to be blessed by the Lord and enter His kingdom are the people who know what pleases God and do it. It's really that simple. Another way of saying it is this. If we are not hearing the Word of God... And allowing the Word of God to shape our lives, we cannot expect Him to bless us. If we are not hearing the Word of God and allowing it to shape our lives, we cannot expect God to bless us. If you're a note taker, write this down. I'm going to give you something good. Don't ask you to write it down very often. If you've got something to write with, write this down. God will not bless things He hates. God will not bless things He hates. That ought to be the most obvious truth in the world, but I'm telling you that many times it isn't. Just like with Uzzah, so many times we just do what comes natural to us, but Uzzah lost his life because nobody took the time to find out what would please God in that context. And I suspect that the reason that many of us experience so many tragic things in our life is because we, too, have neglected to simply go to the Word of God and find out what God thinks about it. Let me close with this thought. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? The Bible says that, that believers in Christ were first called Christians at Antioch. And the reason that they were false, first called Christians there is because they did such a good job knowing what pleased God. They did such a good job following the example of Jesus that the people of that town pointed out at them and they said, look, there go those little Christ. There go those little followers of Jesus. That means that that was a group of people who really wanted to know God and really wanted to find out how to please Him and try to live it out in His life. That ought to be how it is with God's people. If we claim to be God's people, 
We ought to want to live in order to please God. God's character, God's nature, and God's will is is revealed right here. And if we don't take advantage of that, it is indicative of a heart problem in us. God reveals Himself right here. So if we claim we want to know God and we're not availing us ourselves of His Word, that is ind- indicative of a heart problem. Here's something else to write down and I'm going to be done. Not knowing God is a sure sign of not knowing God. Not knowing God is a sure sign of not knowing God. There are so many people who claim to be believers and belong to God, but if you ask them anything about it, if you ask them if they know God, they will say they won't. Let me tell you something. If you're not seeking to know God and His will in all the little particulars of your life, you may be in trouble at the very heart of your spiritual walk. If you don't know God, it is a pretty good sign that you don't know God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name. And I can't think, help but think, Heavenly Father, in my heart that, that we feel a little bit buffeted and a little bit beat up this morning. And yet the reality is that we are living, even among Christians, in a biblically illiterate society and culture. And so each person is just going about their business and doing what they think is best without ever consulting your word. And that never ends in any other way except tragedy. Father God, I pray this morning that the one thing that you will accomplish in our hearts is that you will take us off automatic pilot. Lord God, when we begin to make the decisions in our life, whether it's how much money to borrow or what we will wear or who we will marry or where we'll go to school or if we'll go to school, may we at least begin to ask the question, what does God think of this? And then, Father God, I pray that you will use your word to just reveal that in our heart, make us willing to make the sacrifice Make us willing to become those living testimonies, those living pictures of who you are, who Jesus is, who you would have us to be. Help us, Heavenly Father, to begin to live as men and women of God. Because if there was ever a time in the life of this nation that it needed to happen, it needs to happen now. God, we claim to be your people. We pray that you will help us to uh, make that claim good. We lift it to you this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.